the word of God. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The word of God. Brothers and sisters, the only one who has ever complete, had, had complete control over the entirety of his life uh, was and is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, slam dunk, uh, period, drop the mic. That's the only one that has ever lived among us who has had complete control over his entire life. In fact, this is something of what we mean uh, when we refer to him in our hymns and our prayers as the Lord of life. Uh, there's many references in the Old Testament to oaths that are taken, and what people will usually say is something of the effect of, as the Lord lives, I'll do this and that. You know, they'll establish the contours of uh, the oath. In other words, what they're doing is they're indicating the certainty, uh, the permanence, and the stability of whatever it is that they're promising. And so we have the Lord Jesus here, the God-man, saying here that, he is sovereign over his very life. And yet notice one thing. Uh, notice that not even he was exercising complete and autonomous control of it, all on his own, detached from the will of his Father mediated by the Spirit. That is to say, Jesus shows us what it is to live a life that's completely dependent upon his Father. And in his dependence upon his Father, he's therefore able to take full and complete charge of his life, even to the extent that he remains sovereign over every breath that he takes, even the very last one that he's going to draw in this world under the hands of sinful men. One of the things that people say to their kids when they're going off to college is, all right, little Johnny, go make something of your life which is an adage that we say usually having to do with the uh, wish for their success. In other words, it means, uh, I hope that you be successful in doing uh, this or that. Go be productive, or something like, uh, like that. But notice that it's always going to be a limited phrase to us, always, 100% of the time. Because there's a caveat that goes with it that's often gone uh, unspoken. Uh, we who live in this life, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, under the sun, know full well that we're not the ones in charge here. Uh, we're, we aren't actually able to make something of our lives as though we're in complete control of all our days and all of our hours, and that we know that if we just arrange the circumstances almost like a math equation, success will be certain. Uh, we can control, uh, I guess, a few things in our lives, but the majority of it we aren't actually able to control. I mean, we're not able to accurately forecast a whole lot of things, not even the next day, not even the next few hours. We're not able to actually accurately forecast whether or not we're going to get home safely tonight. And perhaps it's for this reason, James 4, verse 15, it says that instead we ought to say, if the Lord wills, listen to this, 
we will live and do this or that. There's an admission here of the frailty of life, the uncertainty of life, uh, that even the patriarch Jacob, if you remember Genesis uh, 47, he can be 130 years old. Uh, Genesis 47, verse 9, and even he, at that portion of his life, I believe he has 17 more years to live in his life, but even at 130 years old, he can look at Pharaoh and say, few and evil have been the days and years of my life. There's an admission here of the malleability of life, uh, the frailty of life, the changeability of life, the fact that no one is ever in complete control of the most basic reality that all of us in this room experience, our lives. In other words, whatever happens with our lives, we know how it starts and we know how it ends, I suppose, but we just don't exactly know how it ends, I suppose. Uh, we live it, that is, we live our lives, and yet we're not a whole lot of, we don't have a whole lot of control in terms of what happens within it, and we definitely are not in control of how it ends, hey? Eh? Uh, and yet the Lord Jesus here says that he dispenses with his very life as he wishes, and that he has absolute and sovereign control over his life. In other words, he is absolutely sovereign over it. And these claims are understood by many uh, who are nearby, and you see how they react in our passage of Scripture. So this is what we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, with God's help uh, in our study tonight. Uh, the theme is written in your bulletin. When Jesus makes claims about his own sovereignty, he puts people at a decisive crossroads in terms of what to think of them. And essentially, we're just going to walk through this passage tonight just looking at these uh, two points, the claims and the controversy, to uh, round out our study tonight. And as we come to the first point, in the, uh, thinking about his claims, we come to verse 17, uh, where Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. And here we have something of, of a perplexing a uh, little tidbit here. It's kind of hard to see in the original language as it is, in, uh, is it in, in English. But it isn't as though Jesus meant that the Father's love for the Son is founded upon or established upon or grounded upon the Son laying down his life. If that were the case, someone could rightly ask, well, didn't the Father love the Son before that? You know, perhaps you're asking that very question uh, yourself. Rather, we, we read it this way. That the Father's love for the Son results in him laying down his life that he may take it up again. For this reason, or in the original, it says, because of this, the Father loves me. Take a pause. I lay my life down so that I will take it up again. The verse indicates the results of the love of the Father to the Son. The Son lays down his life and takes it up again. And in this way... The Father, the love of the Father towards the Son is demonstrated. And to put it this way, kind of a macro level, standing back from <coughs> this, uh, this passage here, there is in, a, in the Godhead an eternal love and a self-generating love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. These three persons in one essence, they share an unending love that was there before the Son took upon himself flesh. So to get the substance of the first of his claims, now that we, we know this, I'd like you to see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said in one fell swoop that the Father operates 
in concert with the Son, Jesus, and that Jesus operates so jointly with the Father, even to the point where his entire life is rendered over in obedience and reliance upon his Father, that the purposes of the two, the Father and the Son, become the same. In other words, what is the claim that Jesus is making here? It's a claim to his equality with the Father, yet again in the Gospel of John, which is a, a heightened theme in this, this Gospel. We find it all over the place, strewn all over the place. Uh, the, it's a claim to the, the Son's equality with the Father because it's a, it's, it's a claim to the similarity of their purpose. It's the will of the Father to orchestrate redemption. And so it's the will of the Son to accomplish the work of redemption. And Jesus, being the good shepherd, who, as we saw in verse 15, he lays down his life for the sheep, we can see here that he lays it down in accordance with the will of his Father. It's a claim to equality with the Father because of the similarity with their purposes, firstly. And secondly, there's a claim to the apportioning of his own life in accordance with his Father's purposes. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And we know that what this refers to, right? Uh, it refers to the cross. And moreover, it refers to the empty tomb. In other words, this is a claim to the accomplishment of his work of redemption. He knows the direction that he's headed in. He knows that it's his father's will for him to die for the sake of his sheep and to rise again after that. He knows that, as Isaiah 53, uh, verse 10, says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. And listen to how this verse continues, by the way. Isaiah 53, verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, the crucifixion, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus knows that he will be crucified. He knows that his crucifixion will result in him leaving the tomb on the third day. And all of this is in line with the purposes and the will of the Father. That even involves the day of his very death and we could say beyond. He makes a claim to the apportioning of his own life. That he, in obedience to the will of his Father, will lay down his life. And, and because of that... He will take it up again. He still lives to this very day in intercession for us. We just sang a song about that. Behold the throne of God above. What do we have? A strong and perfect plea. Hebrews 7 verse 25. So he lives now to make intercession for us. All in accordance with the will of his father. Apportioning his life. Laying it down for his sheep in accordance with the will of the Father. Secondly, thirdly, he not only makes these claims, he also makes a claim to his sovereignty over his own life. Verse 18, he says, No one takes it, that is my life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And it's with this that the dialogue at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, uh, the dialogue of Jesus stops. And think of what this means here. Uh, it, it, there's a lot that's implied here. It means, to say the least, that he was never the helpless victim of those around him or of forces that were beyond his control. 
One of the reasons, by the way, why we don't have pictures of Jesus, specifically Jesus on the cross, uh, is to answer a rather large question. How do you depict that? Um, how, do you, how do you capture everything that's going on there? How do you portray all the stuff that's going on there? How do you portray this? How do you portray the Son of God who willingly goes to the cross in order to be executed, all the while he's wielding uh, the full power of heaven? How do you portray that? Jesus says to Peter in the garden, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He says to Pilate at his trial, John chapter 19, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. How do you depict that? How do you depict all of the realities that are, that's going on all at the same time with the Son of God at the cross Willingly, He was not a helpless victim at the cross, nor was he not in control of the entire situation. We don't serve a passive Christ. We don't serve a weakling Jesus who just so happened to end up on the cross by mistake. He was there, Acts chapter 2, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's a plan and a foreknowledge that included him having the ability, and even, according to this passage, the charged authority, uh, we can say by divine right, to lay his life down for his sheep at the time that he should, and not a moment too soon, and not a moment too late. We serve a Christ who, as he is rendering his life fully in concert with the Father, he is therefore completely in charge of his life from womb to tomb and beyond. Now think about what, this claim, what these claims mean. Uh, that is to say, he works collaboratively with his father. He apportions his life in accordance with his father, and therefore he exercises sovereign control over his entire life, and he lays it down for his sheep. Think of the implications of this. I mean, there's a lot that's, that's there. At, at, at the very least, it means that no one is here by mistake. No one just so happens to uh, slip up and end up in Christ, right? Everyone who is in Christ, all of you are here on purpose in the mind of God. There's no one that's here by mistake. It means that you're here on purpose and that God wants to continue the manifestation of his work of mercy somehow in you. It means that your life is completely covered by his life. It means that none of us can make anything of our lives, but Jesus can. And he did. And he did it for you. All of our life, Colossians 3, is hidden with Christ in God. It means that the only way to make sense of this life is for it to be lived in Christ. These are exclusive claims uh, that demand exclusive uh, allegiance and obedience to the Lord Jesus. And these claims then were evidently understood by some, at some level by these uh, onlookers, as we see. Uh, so much so that it caused division of sorts. So we've seen the claims, and now in front of us we'll look at the conflict uh, for our next point. And so as we do so, we come to verse 19, where we gather the sentiments of the people around Christ. And now the division of people's outlook <clears throat> about Jesus is something that you'll notice is 
a gradual theme in the Gospel of John. If you remember all the way back in chapter 1, the religious elite, they start with uh, kind of asking questions to John the Baptist because he's you know, forerunner of Jesus, sort of associated with, uh, with Jesus. You know, who, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you alive? You know, they, they, they start with, uh, with questions, uh, kind of poking and prodding and stuff like that. And, and you know, with flare-ups and cool-downs and whatnot, the religious elite, they steadily grow in their animosity and their hatred of uh, Jesus it grows steadily until the resurrection. And here is yet another example of the way that the audience responds to Jesus in his message. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And to say this firstly, it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus, who is the premier of heaven, or heaven's VIP, it shouldn't surprise us when the VIP of heaven itself enters into a fallen world, he starts saying things about himself and about his father whom he represents, and his words bring about division with those who are otherwise allied with the system of sin that we know as the world. Uh, now, his words aren't natively divisive. He uh, doesn't uh, intend to bring about like a vitriolic and, and sinful disunity or anything like that. They are divisive. They divide because they've, they, they've, they've always been there as a monument of a sharp divide, a distinction that those, there are those who love their sin and want nothing to do with him. And there are those on the other side who recognize and they hate their sin and they flee to him for rescue. And as a matter of fact, this is how the earliest Christian literature that we have, the earliest extant Christian literature depicts salvation, by the way, as rescue, which is, by the way, why it took over a thousand years for something called the doctrine of justification by faith alone to be debated. Everybody was, was, was aligned that whatever... Jesus is, he's primarily the one who rescues. He's the one whom I go to because I'm, 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 fraught, I'm saddled in a mire, muck of, of sin. And in the ministry of Christ, there are those who realize this and flee to him for rescue and those who don't. And that's what you have here in the ministry of Christ. And I'll submit to you that we live in a very similar set of sentiments today as those who Jesus is speaking to regarding both the world and the church. A very similar set of sentiments. It is indeed the case that there is a division in our culture about the things of Christ. You'll hear plenty of people, both on the left and on the right, whether you're, you have people who are agnostic, atheistic, liberal, liberal Christian, ultra-mega Republican, anything in between, just about anything in between, who want to commandeer the things of Christ. Uh, they want to hijack the things of Christ. To some, in other words, Jesus is the figure who stands for what they want him to stand for, as what they refer to as social justice. And then to others, Jesus is the figure who stands for the Declaration of Independence, faith, family, and freedom, and the like. We need to realize that when we claim allegiance to Christ, we thereby commit ourselves to discerning who the biblical Jesus is and not who the convenient Jesus is at that time. 
or the Jesus who merely suits our own interests for our own agenda and our own purposes. And this is something of what's going on here regarding the words of Christ, which kudos to them, by the way, it's regarding the words of Christ. Uh, that's to say that in our culture, we're more divided on the person of Christ, usually surrounding the question of, of whatever he stands for so that we can kind of get him on, on my side. Right? This, this is, this is a, the, the American problem uh, with, with Christ. We want Jesus to be on our team. And so we'll, we'll, we'll placard a little bit about Jesus here, a little bit about Jesus there, so that we can kind of say that he's on, on my side. Well, at least kudos to them. In our passage, there was a, divi a division amongst the Jews because of his words. That is, because of what he taught. And the division, you'll notice in verse 20, is between the many and, in verse 21, the others. Which kind of tells you in a backhanded way that the majority isn't always correct simply because it's the majority. Verse 20, many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? This is now the third or the fourth, depending on how you count them, the third or fourth time in the Gospel of John that people are going to say that Jesus has a demon. Now, for sure, we know that there's other times in the ministry of Christ around this where he's accused of being in league with the powers of darkness. But it shouldn't surprise us to hear that people say that he is insane. It's often thought in that day that demon possession would include things like insanity, paranoia, things like this. But think of what they're saying. And again, think of the context surrounding this. Think of this. Uh, there's the guy. They can look at the guy who has been healed of his blindness. There he is. They can look at the religious elite and how they threw their weight around, and especially with this, uh, this poor fellow. Uh, they can see very clearly that Jesus was the only one who uh, came up to this, uh, this poor man uh, to care for him when he was thrown out of the synagogue. And they can hear Jesus say uh, these words, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And nevertheless, they will attribute all this to the work of the devil. On the one hand, the world is standing on their heads, and on the other, they're saying that Jesus is the one who's upside down. That's what they're doing in terms of charging him with the works of the evil one, no matter how little this makes sense. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when this kind of resistance comes to you as well. On the whole, the agenda of Christianity is incongruous with the agenda of those who love their sin. On the whole. And so don't be surprised when they insinuate that you are in fact evil when what you're doing is nothing else than endorsing righteousness. So you have the many on the one hand, and then on the other hand you have verse 21, others who said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind, of the blind man? And it's with this now that we know that John uh, lifts us away from the Feast of Booths that we've been following since the beginning of chapter 7. But notice how it ends. It ends rather ominously, with the reader not really receiving an answer to the question that's posed here. Uh, it ends with something of a doubt, not a doubt as to the miracle, everybody can see that. Not a doubt as to what Jesus said. It ends with a doubt as to what Jesus is being accused of. And I think it's here to press a couple of things upon us. Firstly, 
And, and most sim simply, it's supposed to press upon us that the, the, the basic fact that the rejection of Jesus wasn't quite yet at its highest point. Again, in about six months, he would be back in Jerusalem to go to the cross. But as of yet, the hostility towards Christ wasn't yet in full swing. Secondly, it ends like this to give us a glimpse of the confusion that ensues, especially when they have such clear evidence of his innocence of the charges that they brought against him. I mean, put yourself in that, in that position. I like to say, put yourself in the sandals of the original audience. I mean, really? Uh, people are saying that this Jesus is uh, oppressed or possessed by a, a demon? He just healed a guy of blindness. He's the only one who approached this poor man who, uh, who, who shrouded him with love and compassion, uh, with protection. The devil is all about destruction. The, 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 this isn't the work of the devil. This can't be the case that this man has a demon. Whatever is the case regarding this man, we know that it's not that. But that's where this question ultimately leads us, right to the mind of the hearer right to the mind of the reader. In other words, the reason why this passage ends like this, this context ends like this, is to pose this very question to you, the audience. Because right here you have a crossroads. Uh, even though someone can very easily point out that this last question isn't one that expresses faith in the Lord Jesus, it nevertheless expresses doubt as to what he's guilty of. C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian author, once wrote this famous saying in his book, Mere Christianity. Jesus is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is the Lord as he says he is. For all intents and purposes, those are the options. And that's what's presented here. That's what we have here. And that's what every single person is confronted with. He claims equality with his father. He claims to be... Uh, in himself, the accomplishment of his father's plan of redemption. He, he claims sovereignty over the very laying down of his life. He claims to be the Lord. And yet, many will say he has a demon. He is insane. And if he's not the Lord, as he claims to be, he is the other two. So this ends with a question that's posed to you. What do you say about him? Do you confer with him that he is, in fact, the light of the world? Do you confer with him that he is the door of the sheep? Do you confer with Jesus that he is the good shepherd, lay his life down for his sheep, or do you reject this? Again, the simple contrast. We who are in Christ have been made to hear the voice of the shepherd. We've been made to enter into the door. We've been made to see him as the light of the world. Every single person, though, falls under the weight of this question. And so we see the life of Christ given so that you will not be counted with the many or the others in this passage, but that your heart would be gripped. Not just so that you can question whatever they accuse Jesus of, but so that you can claim him as your Lord Claim him as one who has opened your eyes as well. We've seen that when Jesus makes claims about his own sovereignty, he puts people at a decisive crossroads in terms of what people think 
of him. And I'll close with just a couple of uh, applications uh, tonight. Firstly, uh, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, it's because God is for you. And he has apportioned the life of his son for you. If you're in Christ, it's because God is for you and he has apportioned the life of his very son for you. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. It's the Father's love that's manifested in Jesus accomplishing redemption for us. And this goes for everyone who's in Christ. And and imagine for a second, if you will, how this would hit the original audience. who are undergoing persecution on all sides, both from the Romans and from the religious Jews, not to mention families, friends, and the like. Imagine how this would hit the original audience. And imagine how this kind of comes up to our doorstep even even now. Imagine what a comfort this is to everyone who comes in contact with this, even to us, that even though you'd be filled in a room, room, you'd be in a room that's filled with people who hate you, or in this context, in a coliseum, filled with an angry mob who just wants the lions to be let loose on you. They hate you and everything that you stand for. And yet the word of God here tells you whose opinion about you matters the most. That God is for you. That he has apportioned the life of his very son for you. Note note also that this isn't just uh, a general, sentimental uh, sort of God is for you or something like that. But the word of God here has put life into that sentiment. The life of the son of God into that sentiment. That is to say that the Father wants you. He craves for you. He's apportioned the the, the life of his Son. He wants you to be in Christ. The Father has charged the Son that the Son is to lay down his life and take it back up again for you. So that you would be made somehow to showcase the mercy and grace of God to all creation. If you're here... If you are in Christ, it's because God is for you. He's apportioned the life of his very son for you. Secondly, take take the fullest charge of your life by rendering it over in obedience to Christ. Take the fullest charge of your life by rendering it, and we can even say surrendering it uh, over to obedience to Christ. We think too much like consumerists. Uh, if we say or think that we need to kind of grab life by the horns or we need to make something of your life or something like that. Because the only way that something is going to be made of your life is for you to give it to Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. It's very similar here where we see the son giving his life over in obedience to the father. He's doing us, he's doing this to show us something. No one can ever make anything of their life. Not you, certainly not me. Only Christ can give you life from above. Only he can include you into his fold so that you who are in Christ, now seated uh, with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, will be raised on the last day. And you know what this does uh, for me, and I I hope and pray for you, What this does is it gives me a a purpose. It gives me an encouragement. It gives me a a drive, knowing where I'm going to end up, 
to render my life over to him, to surrender my life over to him, knowing that whatever happens in this age, he will raise me up on the last day. Everything will be reconciled in Christ. So we can say that the fullest charge that anyone can take, really, of their lives is to surrender it to Christ, who himself has gone through all the miseries of this life, who himself has even gone into the mouth of death itself, and yet has come out victorious. That's the life I want. And that's the life that I pray you want. One that's not subject to the rules, the norms, the ordinances of this world, with all the sin that besets it. The life I pray that you desire would be one in which the law of the Lord is our delight. One in which we can actually love one another, seeking the greatest good for one another. The life that I pray that we desire is one that's rendered and surrendered in obedience to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, O Lord, that you have apportioned the life of Christ for all of your sheep.